finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end. Keep alert with all preservance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and and what I am doing to Jesus and the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we will be taking a look at uh, the reading that Lucy just uh, read for us, Ephesians 6. So I invite you to uh, have that open before you, either in the service sheet or if you have a Bible. Uh, and uh, just uh, before I, I get going, um, please bow with me in prayer. Our Father, we, we come before you. We acknowledge our dependence on you. We acknowledge that... Uh, we want to hear from you. So we ask that your spirit would guide my words. Would you, would you knit us closer to you um, as we uh, look at what, uh, what this passage is all about? We ask that you'd speak. We ask that you'd guide my words. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you've been here with us uh, at Emmanuel uh, throughout the last uh, few months now, you'll know that we've been going through a series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you look at our reading in Ephesians 6, uh, you see that it begins with the word finally. Um, finally. We're reaching the end of the letter. Um, we have this grand conclusion which ties together the many themes that have run through the whole letter. It's a letter that Paul... Uh, He's an early Christian teacher, the Apostle Paul. He wrote to a church that he had helped establish in the Roman city of Ephesus. And if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, 
You'll have noticed that the intensity of the subject matter that Paul has been addressing has ratcheted up a few notches. The last uh, two sermons covered marriage and slavery. And if you missed them, uh, go have a listen. I think Jim really helped us to navigate these complicated relational issues on those topics. But um, this increasing um, intensity is actually what we should expect in this letter as Paul moves from rather abstract theological ideas to concrete life examples of what it means that Jesus is God who came to us as a human being to restore what was broken between humanity and God. And I think this intensity is amplified a bit because for many of us, we like to keep things in the abstract. We like philosophical conversations. We like thought experiments. We, we, we like the idea of God or spirituality or, or morality, as long as we can keep it out there. Or, or maybe, um, maybe you just, you don't like the idea of God. Um, and by keeping God in the realm of the abstract, you're able to dissect um, and analyze it and explain away the, the superstitions and all of those sorts of things. Or maybe it's a way to sidestep the instructions in the Bible. When Paul writes, uh, finally, as I've said, he's not just wrapping up the end of his letter so that he can send his greetings and go on to his life, which happens to be in jail um, where he's writing from. What he's doing is he's tying together many of those previous themes and pointing us to the very practical thing that enables us to live out in the body, these spiritual realities. And that thing is prayer. Now, that's not the only thing he's focusing us on. The, the other thing, he, at least one of the other things he's focusing on is declaring or sharing the good news of Jesus with others. But I want to focus on prayer this morning because that undergirds all that we do, including sharing Jesus with others. Now, in saying that, maybe prayer resonates with some of you, um, but others are thinking um, that that doesn't really sound all that practical at all. And maybe others are thinking, well, prayer, that, that actually sounds rather abstract or spiritual or out there. Wait, how does this relate to what I do day to day? How does it relate to things like marriage and relationships, uh, relationships between children and parents, and even the subversion of the institution of slavery that we saw last week in the beginning of Ephesians 6? And how does prayer relate to the time we are living in right now? This week marked one year since the world changed. Life ground to a halt around the globe. And in this last year, we've all been affected in different ways. How have you responded to these changes? I think one of the things that the pandemic has exposed is that we don't have as much power or control over things as we thought we did or that we would like to have. Maybe it's the economic downturns hit you hard. Maybe um, your job's radically changed and you, you stare at a screen all day now. Maybe school is just weird now. Maybe it's the fragility of life and the stark reality of facing so much death over the last year that's been prominent for you. Maybe it's wrestling with mental health. Maybe it's the political turmoil over the last year that's fractured relationships you once thought were rock solid. 
Or maybe it's facing the reality that there's systemic injustice and racism in our society that's beyond the control of any one person. And we, we struggle with the loss of power, right? That's the power and influence over other people and things that brings meaning to life. Or we struggle with the loss of control, which is that, you know, I feel like my life has meaning because I'm able to have mastery over something else. We struggle with those things and we, we, we don't have enough power or control by ourselves to change things. But, but if those impulses are what is driving us, then we can be left feeling pretty shattered after a year like we've just had. And if we're honest, I think every one of us is shattered in some way, in some part of our life after a year like this. The book of Ephesians is driving us to a point, to pray. That's where Paul lands. It's simple, maybe, maybe, maybe too simple. Maybe it's rather disappointing given all the other stuff that's mentioned in our passage. But I wanna suggest that a big part of our discontent and discomfort is rooted in the fact that we don't pray. Right? I don't pray or you don't pray, at least, at least not consistently or not as much as we'd like to. Or, or maybe, maybe you don't even want to. Right? We're all in different places on this. Why is this? Well, I think, I think prayer is ultimately um, a reliance on God. It's, it's a turning things over to him. And that grates against our desires for control and power. So, so we need to take a look at our passage to see, see where, where all this stuff is. Um, the, the, um, the question, that's the question we're going to look, look at. So, so let, let's take a closer look. Our passage is centered around the imagery of armor, the armor of God, as it's called in verse 13. We basically have an initial call to be strong in the Lord in verse 10. And then following this, we're given the reason why we need armor. Then we have a description of what this armor is. And then finally, we're told what that armor does and what we do with it. So first, our initial call to be strong, it's in verse 10. And verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This command to be strong carries the sense of a continuing call to be empowered. Continue to be empowered by the Lord and in his strength. It is not a one-time thing. And it's not something we generate out of our own capabilities or sheer willpower. It's calling us to an ongoing, empowering dependence on Jesus. And the rest of our passage is really an expansion of this call. It connects up to prayer in verse 18, where we're called to pray at all times in the spirit. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. And this dependent empowering grates against our desire for power and control, doesn't it? It goes against the independent streak we are encouraged to cultivate today. So what does this all look like, right? The continued empowerment from Jesus. Well, the next verse begins by stating, put on the whole armor of God. But before Paul explains how to do that, he gives us the reason why we should. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. 
The reason why we need armor is that we have an enemy set against us and we're in a battle. It's not a battle against other people, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And then there's the devil who's set against God's purposes in the world. Now, some of us are ready to check out here because this sounds kind of like medieval superstition or something, or it sounds like a spiritualized way to get around dealing with the real issues on the ground, right? Things like child trafficking and racial injustice and abusive spouses and political corruption and all, all these things. There's actually about a, a 100 year long history since uh, the world wars, World War I and II, of reading this passage is not actually referring to spiritual forces, but to human systems of oppression. And then from this reading uh, of the passage, um, we, we, we're called to an, we have this kind of call to arms to, to fight against these systems and structures. But Paul is not referring here to human systems and structures of oppression. He's quite clear that these are real spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the context he's writing in, that's what it means. However, it does not mean that these powers and rulers and authorities are disconnected from these on the ground issues or that Paul is not concerned at all with issues of systemic injustice or oppression. We'll return to this in a moment. But, but I, I also wanna say that, you know, I think there's others of us who just wanna check out here because you've seen these verses used to spiritualize everything so that everything we do is an epic spiritual battle. And often this focus on the spiritual world has led to not taking things like, like mental health or economic disparities or things like that seriously, right? And, and you've just seen the excesses of that. But regardless of, of how, how this is hitting us, um, this, this can all seem to be rather disconnected from our daily lives. But these principalities and powers are not um, a return to, to like abstraction. Paul's not trying to be all, all out there, all academic or, or, or otherworldly. He's actually, the, the, these things are actually connected to concrete situations of life, such as marriage and family and slavery that Paul has just addressed in the letter just before this passage. Spiritual um, is not the opposite of physical, um, nor is it in opposition with the physical. It's not spiritual good and physical bad. There's actually an interconnectedness between the two. And what I'm trying to get at here is that this focus on spiritual principalities and powers and the devil can't be disconnected from the real physical experiences that constitute our lives. Husbands loving wives in the same sacrificial manner as Jesus loves his church, which is what Paul talked about earlier, is, is not easy. There are concrete ways that we can do this and there is spiritual opposition to this. And so when, when Paul is in the beginning of Ephesians 6 is telling masters to treat their slaves in a way that sees them as equals, thereby by like planting the seeds to subvert the entire enterprise of slavery. This means there are specific physical things to do and there is a spiritual dimension to it all, right? This isn't going to be easy. And so um, when we look at like modern slavery as it was practiced in this country, 
The abolition of slavery was rooted in the affirmation that black and brown bodies are fully human, created in the image of God, and no spiritualized emphasis on just saving souls is going to cut it. Yet at the same time, the entire institution of slavery was recognized as demonic by Christians who were oppressed. These tensions still exist in so many ways, even in our society today. While Paul's not talking here about human structures and institutions of oppression, it doesn't mean those things aren't real or that they can't be connected to these spiritual powers. It's not a one-for-one one thing, but neither is it totally unrelated. It's a whole lot messier than we want it to be. And, and, and what I want to say here is, as we move on is that not every challenge we face is an explicit spiritual battle, right? Sometimes um, you're just really hungry and you need to eat. Um, but neither can we dismiss spiritual opposition. Again, acknowledging the reality of these spiritual powers, um, it's something that grates against our desire for control and power in our own lives. To think that there are other powers out there that influence our lives can be disconcerting. Now, I've been referencing the passages that come right before ours in Ephesians 5 in the beginning of chapter 6, um, because the connection to what comes before in those verses is important. It helps us see a theme that's stretched throughout the whole book of Ephesians. And one of those themes is it's our union with Christ. Maybe you've heard this phrase, maybe not. But it's basically a kind of a fancy way of describing the close relational connection by which Jesus draws us into God's presence and into what God is doing in the world. This union is actually vividly portrayed through the imagery of armor. So let me explain. Um, we're called to be continually strengthened in Christ. And we've been given the reason why we need armor, that we're in some sort of spiritual battle against the devil and the spiritual forces of evil. So what exactly is this armor that we're supposed to make use of? Verses 13 to 17 give us a list. I'm not going to read the whole, the, the, all the verses. I'm just going to list off what, what it says. There. It says that, that we have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shoes of peace. We have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the sword of the spirit. Now, for those of us that have grown up in certain parts of the church, um, this is one of those passages that maybe we memorized, you know, when we were a kid, or maybe we acted out in youth group, um, or maybe we had the plastic armor playset as kids. Um, and if you didn't grow up in all of that stuff, you're just thinking this is really weird, and you're right. Um, but I bring it up because often when we're overly familiar with the passage, it's easy to just coast to not really get at what it's all about. So, so what is it about? Well, to grasp that, we need to turn over to our second reading from Isaiah 59. Actually, it's our first reading in Isaiah 59. Did you know that Paul didn't make up this armor as a useful teaching tool? He's actually building on imagery from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And this is really important. Isaiah 59 verses 14 to 21 is describing God's anger at his people when justice is not being served, when truth is absent from people, when the poor are being taken advantage of, the politicians and religious leaders are corrupt, and God's ready to do something about it. 
in, uh, in verse 15, I'm just going to read a chunk from the middle there. It says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, this is not the only place in Isaiah where God is described as having armor of this sort. It, it it's, pops up in a number of different places. Um, in fact, God um, or his uh, long hoped for agent of salvation known as the Messiah, who we know as Jesus, the one who will save us and will set things right. They're the ones who wear this armor. Right. And then our passage in Isaiah is, is this hopeful passage. It's leading into the restoration of all things. There's a song of restoration where God and his, his Messiah set things right. So, so, so when we're looking at a reading in Ephesians, we see that the armor of God, as it is called, is not specially made armor for his people. It's actually the very armor of God himself. The fact that this gift of armor is God's own reinforces the initial exhortation that Paul gives to us, that is to be continually empowered in the Lord and in his strength. This is language of participation together. This is, this is language of the close presence of Jesus with his people. The whole thrust of Paul's message in Ephesians is moving from really important theological truths about what Jesus has done for us and to drive it into our everyday life. It's also a passing on of power. In the ancient world, the giving of armor signified a bestowal or transition of power. But this isn't just a giving of power and see you, you're on your own. We're left with God's spirit with us. And as we see, um, and we see this when we're, we're called to pray in the spirit. Uh, that's in verse 18, right? Again, it's this dependent power that needs to be continually drawn on. So, so let's take a closer look at this armor to see what it does and what we do with it. We're first told to take up the whole armor of God in verse 13. But, but the whole armor of God is sort of split into two different categories as we move through it. On, on the one hand, there's four pieces of armor that seem to be already given to us, and, and we just have to take them up. And then there are two that we need to actively receive. The armor that we simply need to take up are, are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, and the shield of faith. Now, note what those things are truth, righteousness, peace, and faith. All of these are necessary to be made right with God. All are gifts of God. Truth is revealed to us in Jesus. Righteousness, being made right with God, 
It's a free gift of grace made possible by Jesus conquering death and dealing with sin for us. Peace with God and even faith aren't generated by us. They come from Jesus. And this all constitutes the, the basic ground on which we have to stand. Our first line of defense is what God has done for us in Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you have this armor. If you don't, it's free, right? It's, it's God's gift to us to clothe us in his armor. It's, an, it's kind of another way of saying that, that we can be reconciled to God. Now, now, the next two pieces of armor are, are to be actively received as we go along. Um, the first category of armor we're, we're to take up, or you know, it's kind of like it's there, like, like it's ready to go. It, it's it just has to be used. Um, uh, and and it, it's uh, there, there's a couple different words that are different. Um, for the last two parts of the armor, um, the word in verse 17, you'll see it's just simply take, right? It's different than the word take up that's been repeated before. Um, it's take as in receive, right? And so the image here is that that a soldier is suiting up for battle. Um, but the, these pieces, um, need, you need to have an assistant to get them on, right? Like an assistant will put the helmet on them and then hand them their sword, right? The helmet of salvation, um, it's not so much about um, our, 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 our initial like welcoming into salvation, but it's actually about deliverance from an active threat. It, it's turning to uh, this battle, uh, you know, against these spiritual forces that, 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 that are in our passage. And then, then we have this sword of the spirit, which is actually the only offensive weapon, right? It's the only offensive part of this ensemble um, that we have. The, the, this stuff is, is all about um, living out life with Jesus. And, and now there's a whole lot about each one of these individual pieces um, that, that I'm not going to get to. Um, but what's important for us right now um, what I want us to, 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 to focus in on is, how, is um, the image of how this all fits together. Now, there's uh, one really important word that clarifies all of this for us. That word is stand. So if you look at verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, you know, and then Paul goes into the, the armor. There's a little bit of a debate over how to understand this image of armor, right? Is it offensive, right? Like, is it we're attacking um, or is it de defensive, right? Is it we're, 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 we're armored up so that, that we have a good defense, right? We're in a battle. What do we do? The image that Paul is drawing on is that of a Roman army standing in a state of readiness. It's neither a defensive nor an offensive posture. To stand, it indicates this resolve to stay in the battle, right? In the type of warfare that was common then, you had infantry and you had cavalry, right? So the cavalry would be on the outside, the infantry would form a line. And then 
with all his armor and gear, you'd act, the, the, the shields were fashioned so that you could interlock them together. And so you form this line. And the idea in the battle was you, you're trying to seek out the weakest point so that you could bust through the line and then everybody would scatter. And so, 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 so th this is all this position of readiness. You, you, you're there. Um, you'd stand in such a way that you could withstand attack, hold ground, and you have an opportunity to engage in the battle. So, so, so this, this standing firm holding your ground here, it connects back to the original charge. Be strong, stand firm, be ready. Um, and it's connected to the fact that we're wearing God's armor. We're relying on Jesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Right? And this is not also an individual act. It's not one soldier by themselves. It's a communal image drawn together around Jesus. Not giving ground, but not charging off on your own. It's stand firm and look to Jesus, which is actually what prayer is, right? God's going to act, right? Think about that image from Isaiah. We're, we're included in God's activity. Um, the thing that binds all the armor together is prayer. And so ultimately, this looking to Jesus in prayer is a giving up on our desire for control and power and yielding that to Jesus's power. It's an acknowledgement that there are things that only Jesus can fix and we need to rely on him as we move forward, right? Stand firm and look to Jesus. He's the one who's gonna make all things right, right? He's the one in Isaiah, right? And then this is why we can make prayer and supplication in verse 18. We are pouring things into God's capable hands, into Jesus's capable hands. The type of prayer here is uh, petitions and requests, supplications. It's crying out to God with the pain and the suffering we see around us or we're experiencing and asking for action, right? We're, we're struggling to keep it together, right? We're, 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 we're holding ground and we're looking to Jesus in prayer, right? Maybe we're enraged with injustice, but we, first we look to Jesus in prayer. Maybe we're lonely. Um, we look to Jesus in prayer. We see people we love suffering, right? We take them to Jesus through prayer. And we do this all together. Even Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, you know, he wrote this letter that we're reading. Here he ends up, he's requesting prayer, right? So, so we stand ready through prayer. We look to Jesus and we move with him knowing there's going to be opposition, there's going to be spiritual opposition, but yet that Jesus has ultimately defeated this opposition. Um, this, this leads us to reaching out, as Paul is, um, to invite people into this close reconciled life with God through Jesus. There, there, there's one image um, that I wanna leave us with, um, which I think I find helpful here in thinking about prayer like this. Um, it's actually uh, in the last book of the Bible, in, in Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, There, it, it's a fantastic book of imagery. Um, but there's this one image of uh, our prayers being described 
as incense that goes up before the Lord. So there's this angel that's holding these golden bowls of incense, which it says are the prayers of the saints. And it's in the middle of this grand description of worship of Jesus in heaven by the angels. And later on um, in chapter eight in Revelation, uh, this this bowl of incense makes a reappearance. Um, These prayers and incense are taken up by another angel who, who takes them and hurls it to the earth and there's just this powerful effect. There's earthquakes, there's thunder, there's lightning. It's just this image of, of the power of prayer, um, right? We, we take everything to Jesus. We trust him to act and we follow him. These, these prayers rise up. Um, but, we, you know, we don't know when or how he's going to act, right? So we have to stand ready. Um but with our eyes on him, and as we're, 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 we're being made like him in this worshipful, active, petitioning prayer, we're going to see things happen. And so, so I want to um, just leave us uh, in our time. We're going to be moving into a time of prayer in a few moments. We're also, uh, but before that, we're, we're going to sing a song. Right, we're we're going to focus our eyes on Jesus. We're going to look at Him, um, and then we're going to pray. We're actually going to be engaging in, in battle, right? Together, um, we're lifting up together all of these things um, and turning them over to Jesus. So, so as I close, I'm just going to leave us with a few moments of silence. Um, a few moments just to look to Jesus, um, to think about what is it, what is it from this past year that's just, we've been wrestling with, right? And what can we give, give up to God? And, and then, um, after a few moments, uh, Amber will, will lead us in our song of response and we will go into prayer. So let's pray. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.